0: sticking around for the conversation here on hawaii public radio this is katherine cruz Tis the season for giving, and food banks across the nation are hoping inflation won't dampen people's generosity. The dollar isn't going as far as it used to, and food costs just keep going higher. Here to talk about that is HPR's Casey Harlow. Good morning.
1: Good morning. Yes, and uh, I know that we're in Halloween right now, but I'm sure you've also seen the Christmas stuff already up. Yes. And yes. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of uh, one of the things that I was really interested in. You know, inflation has been another challenge in the last two years for the food banks, and you know. Uh, The food banks are still seeing increased need. You know, um, the Hawaii Food Bank, which services uh, or helps uh, people on Oahu and Kauai, is still seeing uh, 50 percent more people than they usually did in 2019. And that's about 120,000 people. And that is only climbing, uh, according to their uh, president and CEO, uh, Amy Miller Marvin. And then I also uh, got in touch with the Hawaii Food Basket uh, with their executive director, Kristen Frost Albrecht. And she says they're still helping three times the amount of people they usually help. And even though that's lower than the six times that uh, was at the height of the pandemic, There's also seeing, you know, people creeping up, you know, of people asking for assistance as inflation is going further because, you know, gas prices are going up. I'm sure everybody's feeling that at the pump. You're noticing things uh, on shelves or maybe the lack of things on shelves as well. Uh, But I spoke with Kristen Frost-Albert, executive director of the Hawaii Food Basket, and uh, she says, you know, these are still tough times for people.
2: People may be back in their jobs but they've still got this backlog of bills they have to pay. And at the same time, increases in utilities, the cost of gas, and the cost of housing is huge all over this state. But, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough situation. We're seeing a lot of families where two parents are working and, you know, end of the month comes and they're having a very hard time. They just don't have anything left.
1: And, you know, that's because gas to get the jobs, prescriptions, if they need prescriptions, and everything else. And, you know, inflation as well is hitting the food banks as well. You know, typically they have purchasing power, uh, where uh, Amy Miller Marvin says a $10 donation could provide 20 meals, uh, and that could, you know, stretch the dollar a little bit further than that one can of spam at those, you know, uh, fishnet drives that they have, Uh, but, yeah, um, this is Amy M- Marvin Miller, uh, President and CEO of the Hawaii Food Bank, uh, talking about- The food about- that we're
2: purchasing much more expensive. And then at the same time, some of our other reliable channels of food have started to slow down. So our retail donors' um, donations are kind of down across the country as everyone tightens their belt and our companies are dealing with some supply chain issues. And then USDA commodities, which has been a pretty reliable source, and especially during the pandemic, in the last quarter, we brought in you know, about 25% of the seam ordered last year. So we are in a pretty tight spot.
1: And so, uh, again, the supply chain issues, the shipping costs uh, of everything is uh, kind of falling through a little bit here. Uh, the Hawaii food basket didn't even receive a shipment. Uh, of food in August, and so that inconsistency has created them uh, has resulted in them relying on more uh, local farmers and ranchers, which is great because in the last two years they've always had that commitment uh, to uh, local ranchers and farmers, but that's only uh, become grown in the last two years.
0: No, I, I know that some states across the country they were you know asking for money versus goods. Mm-hmm. Are we doing that here?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, so. Um, Basically, they're asking for more donations, but they are accepting, you know, food donations as well. Uh, But yes, definitely the money aspect of it is um, more important Uh, for the Hawaii food basket. They are purchasing about 85% of the food uh, that they need to give away. And yes, relying on local farmers and uh, ranchers is a little bit more expensive. But uh, Frost Albert says they are committed to supporting the local economy and the same thing as well for the Hawaii Food Basket, Amy um, Miller-Marvin, uh, Marvin Miller, uh, basically said they are supporting um, local farmers for buying more culturally relevant foods, such as poi and uala, uh, but they also have new partnerships uh, along the West Coast. Uh, they're receiving a lot more produce from uh, places like in Oregon and California as well, part of these programs uh, that they didn't have to rely on or didn't know about beforehand. But as always, the holidays are coming up, which is kind of a concern for people. You know prices keep going up. the cost of turkey right now. Uh, national average is about a buck 99 a pound. Last year was about a buck 29. Uh, but you know these uh, ob- these items uh, are a lot more expensive and maybe out of the range of these food baskets. Uh, but Kristen Frost albrecht says she does have a little bit of hope.
2: The holidays are coming the really bright spot is that this is an island that knows how to take care of each other i just was in a meeting where we were trying to add up all of the um, food drives that we've been hearing about that people have contacted us different members of our staff it's it's just astounding there are so many food drives happening right now that's a super bright spot in the last two years when people didn't feel comfortable really doing that sort of activity and it's giving us a lot of hope for the holidays and making it through into the new year.
1: So there is a lot of hope still that, you know, Hawaii, the Hawaii community will still uh, provide for people in need as and, well.
0: And so, hopefully, there'll be some turkeys or chickens or something on the Yeah, menu. exactly. <laughs> but right. they
1: are looking towards uh, beef, produce, and uh, tofu possibly.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HPR's Casey Harlow. You can read more of his stories on HawaiiPublicRadio.org. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. <laughs> If you're a bookworm, today's backyard quiz is for you. In 1976, the memoir, The Woman Warrior, uh, Memoirs of a Girlhood Among Ghosts, was published. The author was the daughter of Chinese immigrants and brought Asian American voices to national attention. Her book also shifted ideas of storytelling, blurring lines between fiction and nonfiction, She was recognized for her work on several occasions. She was a National Book Award winner, a Guggenheim Fellow, and received the National Medal of Arts from former President Obama. What most people might not know is that she was also a teacher in Hawaii for many years. She taught English at Kahuku High School, Kailua High, and Mid-Pacific Institute in the 1960s and 70s. Then in 1976, she became an English professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and today we're asking for her name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a uh, HPR reusable tote bag.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Narete Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy, naretehawaii.com.
0: Our reality check today looks at how a $150 fine against a dog owner uh, led to a law firm facing nearly a half a million dollars in damages. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurtin joins us. Good morning, Stuart.
4: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So your story highlights condo law.
4: Yes, exactly. This is condo law, and a lot of it really has to do with the relationship between condo owners and the associations uh, that their mem- the owners are members of. And uh, the lawyers hired by the associations to uh, represent the association if it gets into a dispute with the condo owner.
0: So the, the condo that we're talking about is Plumeria Holly. And that's one th- that I'm familiar with. It's, it's right there on Capilani Boulevard near the cemetery.
4: Yes, exactly.
0: And so what can you tell us? What What happened?
4: <laughs> okay. So essentially what happened was the condo owner, Jeremy Warta, had a dog. Uh, a German shepherd named Oliver, who uh, Mr. Warder said was a service dog and uh, therefore allowed to be in the condo. The uh, association had a no pets policy. There was a dispute about the dog. And uh, ultimately, uh, the association turned things over to a law firm called Porter Maguire. Um, Again, this started out, as you noted, uh, with a $150 citation or something like that against Mr. Warta for uh, violating the policy, allegedly having the dog. Um, But the clock started ticking uh, with the law firm's uh, legal bills. Uh, Under the association rules, Mr. Warta was on the hook for these uh, legal fees. And over time, after years of uh, back and forth, again, Mr. Warda tried to settle. He even got rid of the dog, uh, so the whole issue was moot. Um, but the clock kept ticking and the bills kept uh, increasing uh, for the lawyers, and eventually it, it ballooned up to what Mr. Warda's uh, attorneys said was $150,000, or I'm sorry, $50,000 that he owed the law firm.
0: And so in this situation, so you've got the the condo association suing the condo owner, and then the condo owner then um, felt he was wronged and and sued the association back.
4: Yeah, that's right. Well, he sued the law firm back. Mm -hmm. So essentially what happened was facing $50,000 in legal fees, the condo owner says, wait a minute, this is way out of control. This is out of proportion. This is uh, frankly just wrong. So his lawyer sued the law firm uh, under... A couple of uh, things. One, a federal law called the Federal uh, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, um, which limits what debt collectors do can do in uh, getting their money. Um, He also had an invasion of privacy claim um, involving uh, the law firm posting medical records um, during uh, the litigation. Uh, Both of those things added up to. Uh, the jury finding in Mister Warda's favor against the law firm and awarding Mister Warda uh, almost half a million dollars in damages, including four hundred thousand dollars in punitive damages.
0: I mean, that just seems crazy that you have these runaway costs. Uh, it, it's just—it's nuts.
4: Yeah, and I think this is, when you when I talked to other people, they said this is an essential problem with the relationship between the law firms, uh, the condo associations, and the condo owners. Um, apparently, it's pretty common for the condo owner uh, to have to pay the legal bills of the association if they get into a dispute with the association, and and, and this isn't. If the condo owner loses, this is simply if there's a dispute, the condo owner can be on the hook for paying reasonable attorney's fees for the um, association.
0: So is there something that, I don't know, lawmakers need to fix to kind of, you know, put some handrails on the cost?
4: Well, that's a good question, and it's definitely something we want to explore further. Um, People say, yes, there have been moves to do this. I think it's very hard to do. You know, bear in mind, if uh, associations don't want to have to pay the legal fees, which would Require them to spread the costs among all the association owners, all the condo owners, which could jack up already high uh, maintenance fees that condo owners face. So th- there could be a fix. What it would be, I'm not sure.
0: Okay, all right, but in- interesting, uh, interesting topic. A lot of condos in town. But thank you so much, Stuart.
4: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. Check out his story at civilbeat.org The U.S. 2nd Congressional District encompasses the entire state outside of Oahu, as well as all rural and most suburban areas of Oahu. It's been a revolving door with Kai Kahele jumping into the 2022 governor's race, and before that with Tulsi Gabbard trying to leapfrog into the White House as president. Today we hear from Jill Takuda, a former Senate Ways and Means chair running for the CD2 seat. She's been crisscrossing the state to reach voters, including taking a ferry ride to Lanai this week. What do you want to tell voters about your commitment to this district?
5: You know, I think that's why for me it's always been so important to be present. You know, that means a lot of neighborhood flights, even a ferry ride, right? It means being present in the community to sit and listen and talk story with them and let them know that my goal is to be that voice our families and our people and our workers need in Washington, D.C. And it's about starting a relationship and building a relationship with them for the long term because I think that's so important. I think what they're craving is not just consistency in their office, it's really that they have got an advocate and a friend, someone who understands them, who's walked in their shoes and understands both the struggles and the hopes, uh, and that will be there to fight for them. And and so a lot of it starts, for me, around coffee tables, kitchen tables, garages, in the middle of longs, wherever you will have it, to let them know that um, this election really isn't about me. It's not about any of the candidates, quite frankly, on the ballot. It's about them and them really being able to trust and feel that when they check off our names, that they've got somebody um, who will fight for them and take care of them like family. And so for myself going forward, it's, you know, to me, this is just the beginning. And I hope they know that I will continue to be out and be present in their communities because it's about the long-term relationship that we build to really represent Hawaii well in D.C.
0: You mentioned family you know how do you intend to straddle uh, the demands of of, uh, <laughs> of of two teenage boys <laughs> uh, you know who are at a, at a time in their life you know where where mm-hmm. where they sit matters
5: yeah you know I think I'm gonna do my best like every single mom and dad and caregiver out there <laughs> right whether whether you happen to be straddling a couple time zones, like Hawaii and DC, or you're in the same home together. I think that struggle for balance exists all across our state, all across our country, quite frankly. And you know, for us, the way it begins is by making sure our our boys know that first and foremost, I'm there for them. You know, very similar to my approach to running for this office. I think Matt and Aiden, I hope know that I will always be there for them, regardless of what position. I sit in and that our family, my husband, that their best interest is first and foremost always in mind. And and quite honestly, you know, while it will definitely be a challenge, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it or or try to lie about that. I think that's also a really good thing. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, my heart, my home is right here in Hawaii. I'll never, ever forget why I'm in D.C. and what's important and what I need to go back to and who I'm fighting for. Because my sons, my husband, our family, it's here in Hawaii. This is where my heart is and my home is. And so going to D.C., I'll always have that in the back of my mind. It's about making sure our families and our kids are okay. We saw, you
0: know, both Senator Schatz, you know, who has young children, and Kai Kahele, mm-hmm. you know, make sacrifices. I think it was around this time that I think Kahele came back just to be there for his kids to go trick-or-treating and then was back on a plane the next day. Yep.
5: It's, it's a lot of juggling. It's a lot of balancing. It's, quite frankly, It's strengthening the communication and the relationship that you've got with your loved ones. And our sons were born in office, (laughs) you know, from their earliest, earliest days. They would be crawling around the state capitol. And I'm not saying that that's that they're used to this kind of lifestyle. But at the same time, you know, having to juggle priorities, balance life being there for both constituents and my family this is not new for me and it's a challenge that our family is ready to face together if you
0: are elected during the general there's a chance that the house may not hold on to the majority there. How are you looking at that and the issues that will be before
5: you? This is a question that comes up often when I'm sitting down and talking to folks throughout Congressional District 2. In fact, I I was talking um, with folks at Blue Ginger Cafe on Lanai yesterday morning and this exact conversation came up. How are you potentially going to navigate a Congress in which you're in the minority? And to me I really believe that coming from Hawaii we're in a unique position to have an advantage because while yes we're a bright blueberry in the middle of the Pacific we're very democratic at the same time the way we treat each other the way we relate to each other it really is about seeing each other as people first and foremost recognizing our uniqueness and our differences and our diversity and being able to work together towards a common end I do believe that the way we lead, the way we work together with Aloha, there is a huge opportunity in a divided Congress to be able to make gains, not just for Hawaii, but other states as well across our country by really looking at it from that mindset, that it's not across strict partisan divides, but more importantly, we all, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, have one common thing at the end of the day there in Congress. It's about taking care of our people in our districts. And if we can really coalesce around that, and if we can start from that point and work forward with that sense of a law, I think there are definite things that we can accomplish together, regardless of where the minority or majority falls.
0: Looking back at your time in the Senate and as Ways and Means Chair, can you point to an example where you might have reached across the aisle to get consensus on something?
5: Granted, our aisle was slightly smaller (laughs) in terms of You know, we at one point, we had four Republicans. At another point, we had one Republican. I would actually have to say important agricultural lands. It was my very first chairship back in 2007. I chaired the Agriculture and Hawaiian Affairs Committee, and we had the opportunity to finally, after 30 years, pass legislation that would trigger the designation of important agricultural lands and preserve our most precious food-bearing lands going forward into the future and it sounds like something oh absolutely democrats will all get behind and support but i will be honest because at the end of the day we had to make sure that we followed all the parameters put forward in law it was actually constitutionally mandated it was controversial and without going into too much detail because we could talk about this on the whole show had it not been for the support of republicans in the legislature and the republican administration and governor Lingle's willingness to actually support the bill and have it pass into law, we would not have had the enactment of important eye back in two thousand seven. We would not have that designation on the books as it exists today. And so very early on in my career, it was a big test of leadership. It was a very controversial issue. It was one that divided Democrats, quite frankly. And I can honestly say had it not been for the support of Republicans in the legislature and the executive branch, it would not be here day and we would have those lands potentially in jeopardy of development and so definitely even in here in hawaii where we are very strongly democratic i have had experiences where i've had to cross the aisle in order to get good work done for the people of the state
0: what would you say sets you apart from your opponent in this race you know for me
5: at the end of the day when we look at the slate of candidates that are being put forward for congressional district two and first of all i just appreciate any person who is putting themselves forward to run for office i know personally obviously at first hand how difficult that is and the sacrifices you make to even be a candidate so i appreciate this because that's what democracy is about choice and and having the ability to really choose carefully for myself i really think it comes down to both experience and perspective the ability to know what it's like to have to navigate both the legislative aspect the public sector aspect as well as, you know, be on the other side, running a small business, running a nonprofit organization. So understanding what it's like to be on both sides of that decision-making table and understand the consequences of both action and inaction and how to get things done at the end of the day in a legislative body like Congress, which I know is going to be very different from the state Senate, but one that I feel 12 years being in the state Senate, leading some of the... Uh, The largest committees there really gives me a good footing and a strong foundation to be able to get things done for Hawaii. And I think my perspective also matters. You know, being a working mom, looking at two teenage sons, as as we talked about, uh, worrying about their future, sitting at the dinner table wondering will they have a dinner table of their own here in Hawaii, raising a family of their own. Can they afford it? What kind of jobs will be available? Will there even be housing? such basic kitchen table issues it's not just policy for me it's real life and I think understanding those dynamics understanding the urgency in which we need to act is critical so I think those two things experience and perspective will really make me a strong advocate for our people our families our workers our businesses in Hawaii going to Congress
0: is there anything else you want to say you know as you look back at the fight in the primary election and what you were up against with the super PACs?
5: You know, I'm just so humbled, and I am just, I feel so honored that we were able to come out of that election strongly victorious, and I think it really is a testament to the people of Hawaii that they cannot be bought. know, that, what we saw there in the primary was outside dark money influences trying to buy our election, trying to rob our people of their voice in Congress, And I think the results that we saw across the board was a strong statement that Hawaii will not be bought. Hawaii is not for sale. And I just think that I couldn't have been prouder, more humbled to be a part of that movement to say enough is enough. Let's, we're the ones who will decide who represent us. This is our vote, our voice. And I really think that what we saw in the primary was a testament to how Hawaii wants to be represented.
0: Is there anything that you would advocate for, you know, if you could change something with campaign spending, you know, given that experience?
5: I think we have got to put an end to Citizens United. I think we need more transparency in reporting and more frequency in reporting. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, voters, the people, the public need to be able to know who's behind these ads, and these mailers that they're getting, you know, what are their intentions? And absent that information, nobody knows. And I think that's absolutely wrong. I think it's counter to democracy and what we all stand for. And so I think there's a lot of things that we can do at the federal level. I think there's even things we can strengthen at the state level to increase that transparency And to make it impossible for these kinds of acts to continue to happen. And so definitely we'll be a part of any movement that looks at Ending Citizens United, which I think has really eroded democracy in our country and taken away our voice and increased transparency and reporting and, and information that people have access to. So you know who's behind those dark ads. You know who's behind these hit pieces.
0: That was Democratic CD2 candidate Jilta Kuda talking to us earlier this morning. She says her sights are set on the Agriculture and Education and Labor Committees in the U.S. House. She says the Farm Bill and other reauthorization measures for education uh, will be up starting next year, and she hopes to make sure Hawaii gets its fair share.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, promoting lifelong health and wellness through health care, open to all. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org.
1: You've
0: heard about smartphones and smart watches. What about smart joint replacements? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the latest technological advances in orthopedic care. That's today at 6.30 on The
1: Body Show.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com.
0: As we head into the holiday season, several events are planned across the islands with the aim at benefiting local small businesses and strengthening communities. One took place this past weekend. The 13th Annual Hullabaloo brought vendors, artists, musicians, and hundreds of costume people to Oahu's Chinatown neighborhood. It's the first time the outdoor event has been held in a couple of years. The Conversations Lillian Song and Russell Subbiano walked amongst the crowd and talked with businesses and area residents about how the event impacts the community.
6: Mark Tyrone and I am here as the co-director of Halabaloo.
7: Alright, well you know a couple of years you guys had to take a hiatus because of COVID, but what do art festivals like Halabalu really bring to the district, to this community of
6: Yes, to Chinatown itself. You know, so much attention before the event. You know, lots and lots of media coverage and and celebrating all the wonderful things in Chinatown. So much diversity down here. We really get to showcase that at Havalu. So uh, that's one of the big things. All the eyes and all the ears that we get to reach before the event. And then, of course, here tonight, we have so many people and so many of these folks haven't been to Chinatown in a while. And they come down, they have a great time. They remember, you know, the restaurant that they love or just the whole energy. And uh, so many of them come back. So that's that's some of the best things for our neighborhood.
7: What have you seen so far? What are some highlights of this that you really would like to say that are some wins?
6: Yes, Mui's Herb Shop. That's Chimera and her Wonder Beasts is uh, just should we have a pop up Herb Shop, the grand opening tonight of Mui's Herb Shop and their costumes and their energy and, you know, they're in character the whole time. And uh, so thrilled that we have them here tonight.
8: OK, and
7: right now, positives but are there any downsides? What are you hearing? Tell I me mean, the realities of making a festival here in Chinatown, what have you had to deal with?
6: Sure, well, you know, it's, there's a lot of different people in this neighborhood, so there's there's lots of different interests and it's hard to be the perfect thing for everybody. I don't know if that exists. So, you know, we have to work with the restaurants, you know, the restaurants that have people coming in uh, to make sure they get in fast and get to their reservations. So that's a challenge and we work very closely with the restaurants on that. And, um, and it's just the nature of a big event, you know. It's uh, you know we take up some space when we're setting up and things like that. But honestly, I believe we leave the neighborhood cleaner than, than when we start, and we're proud of that. It's something we've been doing from the get-go. So.
8: Yeah. My name is Patricia Norman. I am an assistant manager at ti 1024. Today for Hollywood Lou, we are dressed up as circus ringmasters. Yeah. <laughs>
7: Wow, okay. Well, Hala I understand it's the 13th year. Mm-hmm. Have you guys always been a part of Hala since the beginning?
8: Uh, pretty much, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've participated in every hollow and it's always a lot of fun, you know, getting to interact with the community and stuff. So,
7: For the past couple of years, of COVID did it kind of shut down all outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing now?
8: For us as a business, like, it's just a chance for us to also expand, like, for them to see, like, street vendor style, like, you know, just the suites, a little, like, sample of, like, some of the stuff that we have going on. And then it helps remind people that we're still here because, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, COVID definitely slowed them down or just completely took them out. But, you know, we at T1024, we definitely pivoted and we learned to adapt and then, you know, we started amplifying takeout and stuff. And I know some people may have thought, like, oh, maybe they're... You know, maybe they're not here or not, but you know, we're still here. We're still making desserts and serving tea. Money's always good, you know, when we're still open. So yeah.
1: <laughs> because you guys live nearby, uh-huh. what, what's what been your, what's what's your perspective of something like this impacting Chinatown?
9: Um, anytime we can draw a
2: crowd, you know, it's, it's good for the business. Now during the pandemic, <laughs> because it was so empty, we had different climate. I mean, it wasn't. It didn't feel safe to walk. And but now it's it's back, and it's it's really nice to see. I see that this is a so full and uh, lots of people. But I really don't see anybody I know. So new new people coming in. Good for the business. especially the food. So yeah, I'm happy to see them.
10: Okay. Good pretty good. What's your name? Maybe.
7: How is it been like right now with Jalapu on the
10: street? It's actually pretty nice. I'm enjoying all the costumes, to be honest.
6: And the music. Pretty yeah. good. Okay.
7: I'm with HPR and right. I, just, I, I was seeing
8: you walk down the I'm street. really <laughs> odd. My
7: name is Renee.
2: Um, I live in Palolo and uh, I love cardboard costumes. <laughs> How long did it take for you? two afternoons or something.
7: It's pretty easy. And what inspired you to come up with Redondos? I went to the wiener dog races earlier today, and I was inspired by the wiener dogs. So I was like, I should go be a wiener dog. Oh, this is so cute though. I love your zippy
9: hat. Thank you. (laughs) On. My friend is Rice, and I'm looking for her. <laughs> okay. My name is Skye. I'm with Chimera Wanderbeast. We are here at Halaburu, and we are doing Mui's Herb Shop. It's an immersive experience where we recreate the uh, traditional Chinese herb shop, but we do a little twist to it. If anything, really bringing that cultural aspect into the street performance. Yeah. So I'm, you know, my parents are from South China, and, you know, up in a Chinese community, it was always embarrassing or, you know, like, people didn't understand when you ate, you know, instead of Snickers bar, you had white candy for, for Halloween, but you know, white candy, you know, it's funny, white rabbit, we, have, we try to buy it right now, it's so expensive, we were like, wow, it's because it's getting popular again, you know, and people are now starting to understand, it's not just... The cheesy corny stuff that you know we grew up as kids and we were always embarrassed about but now we can be proud of our heritage and the way we're doing it with boys herb shop is we're giving a twist that people can understand and it's a little more palatable but also you know it's not always serious all the time and in order sometimes to appreciate it we gotta like at least just enjoy just the, the simple things about our culture my name is greta
2: I'm the front of house manager here at the Other Side Diner.
7: <laughs> okay. So with a street festival like Loop, what are the impacts that you're seeing for the business?
2: Definitely positive. It's definitely bringing in a lot of people. Better than the bar crawl because people are actually buying drinks, <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> well,
7: you know, with the past couple of years of COVID, yeah, you know, there was like, how did you guys handle that? How were uh, things for you?
0: Yeah. So definitely was. Pretty rough for a while, especially being limited to only outdoor seating. Our outdoor seating was pretty limited as well. So definitely like took a pretty big hit for the last couple years, but
2: definitely I've been seeing business picking up more recently, especially with the vlog party and everything. It's positive,
7: yeah.
9: to be enjoying live music, walking around, seeing each other again, so that energy is new for this Baloo.
7: Economic impact, what do you think street festivals like Baloo, art festivals,
9: music festivals really bring to the Chinatown district? Well, first off, it gives jobs back for, you know, the event itself. It creates a community in Chinatown and what Chinatown has to offer it really shines a light on the arts here in the chinatown district i really pay a lot of homage to this area uh, as an artist so i love hullabaloo has a special place in my heart so very happy that it's happening again
0: you heard from hullabaloo co-director mark Tyrone, latricia Norman, Lisa, Nakao, Skyfunk, Nathan and Greta from the Other Side Diner and local musician Taimani Gardner talking with HPRs and Lilian Song and Russell Subiano about the impact of the event on the Chinatown community. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked for the name of an author and former local teacher. She revolutionized American literature when she published her first book, the memoir, The Woman Warrior, Memoirs of Girlhood Among Ghosts. The work defied genres and delivered a contemporary story of rebellion that embedded myth and folklore. She went on to publish five more books. She was also an advocate for women and military veterans and a popular speaker and lecturer. And for a time, the opening chapter of The Woman Warrior was the most widely read and taught piece of writing to American high school students. But some of us in the island might know her better from her time in the classroom. Before she was an author, she was an English teacher at Kahuku High School, Kailua High School and Mid-Pacific Institute. She was also a professor at the University of Hawaii. We're talking about Maxine Hong Kingston which is the answer to today's backyard quiz and congrats to our winner Sharon from Oakland uh, Orchidland you got it right. Uh, if you have an idea for a backyard quiz send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
10: Hi, I'm Leslie Shore, author of Listen to Succeed. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to identify and overcome barriers to effective listening.
3: Beginning Sunday morning at 11 support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Queens Island urgent care treating non-life-threatening illnesses and injuries at six locations across Oahu walk-ins welcome learn more at queens.org and are every you like to see something strange?
11: Come with us and you will see this our town
6: of Halloween this is Halloween. this is Halloween
0: it is Halloween, the air is a little cooler, the shadows a little longer, and our minds may be a little more open. To get you in the spooky spirit, we have a few ghost stories from local supernatural hotspots, and we start with the Honolulu Zoo. Interim Director of Education Charles Lee shares a little insight about what it's like after lights out at the zoo.
11: One of the starts I got uh, on these Twilight tours as a volunteer was going up and dropping apples into the hippo's mouths during these tours for guests to see. Now we're not doing that anymore and I can kind of understand why because when you're standing up there and the hippo's jaws are gaping wide, there's just this rickety little wooden railing that's keeping you from falling in. But it was a total blast. I mean, you get to feed the hippos. How awesome was that? Uh, One thing that was less fun was after the tours were over when all the guests had gone home again that's when i would have to come back here and turn the lights off alone and in the dark and i still could not be certain why maybe it was just the architecture of this area but every time i came back here by myself especially in the dark it felt like i was being watched like there was someone waiting around every corner just jumping out
4: mm.
11: and <laughs> I thought it was just me for the longest time until many, many, many years later. And there have actually been several instances of this area where people have seen or heard strange things. In fact, my coworker, she actually had to do the same thing, turn off the lights, but she didn't have to come back by herself. Our manager drove her in a golf cart. and The thing is, the manager would stop right over there, ask my coworker to come turn off the lights, and she did. She just reached back there, flipped the switch, and ah! There's usually a cockroach or a lizard there, but she flicked the switch off and that's when she heard a sudden scream, a scream that seemed to start somewhere deep in the Savannah, but then would actually travel down this path and go right past her, even though she wouldn't see anything. Afterwards, she would run out, jump in there and ask her manager to take them back right away to the well-lit area of the zoo. And then she asked the manager, did you hear that? At which point the manager would say, why do you think I had you do this?
0: <laughs> and if that didn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, Lee has another story about a haunted item that you won't find in the zoo's gift shop.
11: So, as I mentioned before, the, front, the old front entrance of the zoo, the, what we call the Priest Building is under renovation. Just to give you some background, it's actually designed by Mr. Priest, who's the same person who designed the Arizona Memorial. You see that same distinctive arc shape. Mm. But in any case, Prior to the renovations, that building was used as the administration offices and the old entrance. And immediately prior to the renovations, I was part of the individuals assigned to basically clean that area out and take out what we want to keep and won't lose track of. And it wasn't extremely important by any means, but one thing that really caught some of our eyes was the reception couch where people would sit and wait because it was decorated by these lovely zebra print blankets made of felt or polyester as well as tiger stripe throw pillows. And they were very soft and cuddly and comfy. So, you know, we couldn't let these be destroyed. And we took them back with us and actually kept a few to use in my own bed at home because again, very snugly, very comforting. However, pretty much every night I used those blankets, my dreams would keep getting interrupted no matter what I was dreaming at the time. I would be assailed by this dark human shaped shadow with glowing red eyes and it felt like it was attacking me and trying to suck out my soul. And well, I'm actually kind of a lucid dreamer, so I'm awake even when I sleep. So I would, of course, attempt to fight back, and I would just hear this deep, evil laughter right before I wake up. So I brought those blankets back here, and they're in the classroom right now.
7: Oh my God. Did anyone else take any of the blankets or any of the materials from the couch?
11: Mm, No, we kept them all over there.
7: All right, well, they're up for grabs. (laughs) Anyone can have them.
0: That's why you should never take your work home with you. But that's a tricky task for master storyteller Lopaka Kapanui, also known as the ghost guy. He grew up hearing old legends and ghost stories from his aunties, grandma, and other elders. He shares these stories on walking tours through some of the darkest, spookiest places, explaining why certain Hawaii sites are haunted. Here's Kapanui exchanging a few stories with the conversation's Lillian Song.
10: My job as a storyteller is to be transformative to literally transform them to the place that I'm talking about, you know, and have them feel all the emotions, smell the smells, you know, all of that stuff.
7: So you are sharing the history of Hawaii, telling these stories of people that went on already. Mm -hmm. So tell us a story. Are you sure? Okay. Well, (laughs) let's keep keep in mind we are public radio. Maybe something to. Give us a taste, an experience of what you do.
10: Yeah, so there's those banyan trees between the old State ID building and Ali'i Hale in that parking lot. Coming down Punchbowl, you pass the State Library, you pass the intersection. It's that first right turn behind the bus Mm -hmm. stop. What I found out is that when uh, the Chinese, Eastern Indians, and the Filipinos brought their own variety of ficus or banyan to Hawaii, over the years, you know, local people begin to realize there's a similarity, and that is, the further out the branches spread, the more they're able to latch on to these spirits of the restless dead, dark shadowy human figures with red glowing eyes. In the Philippines, it's often referred to as baleté, the banyan tree, and so there's a belief that after the the services for a departed one, uh, sometimes they will wrap the body in fiber made from pineapple. And they'll place the body within the confines of a a balete or a banyan tree because now that body is for or belongs to the gods or the spirits that live in those balete, those banyan trees. Last year around this time, I realized by one of my sheriff friends that once a month, they have to show up and do overnight duty because electricians, for some strange reason, once a month, have to go to the basement of the old state ID building and fix stuff because the electricity is going haywire and the sheriffs have told me when they originally started doing this they would park under the banyan tree but then they learned a lesson and the lesson was they would hear what sounded like long fingernails tapping on the window and they would look out and there wouldn't be anything physical there but they swore they could see a shadow and other times when they're standing outside the squad car just hanging out, having conversations, they said they look up into the branches of those banyan trees, and they can literally see large shadowy figures moving through the branches, like one through the other. And sometimes the sheriff will say, he will hear a disembodied voice whisper his name, but it's only the name his mom calls him. Sometimes they'll feel a hand go through their hair like this. One of the electricians told me he was downstairs one night on the ladder screwing in a new light fixture and he said his son was holding down the bottom part of the ladder so he wouldn't fall and he said while he's doing this screwing in the light fixture he feels two thumbs insert itself into his the waistband of his pants sort of adjust it, and then pull it up because his pants was beginning to fall down he was so scared he nearly fell off the ladder and was more upset that his son wasn't holding the ladder And so he's screaming for his son, and he realizes afterwards that the son never actually came down with him. He left the truck with all the stuff and assumed that his son had followed him, but his son had been sleeping in the truck the whole time. During that period, who was holding down the ladder? He said, I saw someone there holding it down, but who was it actually? Hmm. The history of that building is that there is a cornerstone of that building that was laid by... Governor Wallace Ryder Farrington. He was a Freemason. And so that's actually a Masonic cornerstone. What we find out later is that after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, you know, there's so many bodies, they ran out of room for them to store on base. So the basement of that old CID building was the temporary morgue during that time. So there's there's that.
7: There is that spiritual history of the deceased. It was a repository.
10: Yeah, yeah.
7: and another site that comes to mind is Halemoa in Waikiki.
10: Mm. Yeah, so what's there now? The former Helomoa Heo is uh, part of the Royal Hawaiian Shopping Center, but also the hotel itself. And there's an article from the 1800s where Mr. Damon is directing a bunch of Japanese labor workers to uproot and cut down all those those ancient trees planted by Kakuihava. And so Japanese laborers are working. It's about noon. They take a break. And what's happening is the way in, in which they're trying to uproot those trees is, is sort of difficult. And so that's why they have to stop and take a break. And the article says that some of the men are returning and that there was a fish pond in that area that grew a moi fish. And this wind comes through the place. It's just wrecking everything. And Mr. Damon. Hears all these Japanese men screaming and running for their life. And what's happening is somehow the wind has upended these coconut trees that the roots at the bottom are coming up like catapults. But what they're catapulting are human remains, skeletons caught within the roots of those old kumunio, those coconut trees. And Mr. Damon, to his horror, witnesses that these skulls and rib cages and femurs are catapulting like this and actually beaning these Japanese labor workers as they're running away, catching them in the back of the head, you know, "Ah!" I can't name names, but certain staff at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel were horrified to know that this actually took place. There's also a night marchers procession going through the grounds of the Royal Hawaiian Hotel as well.
0: That was master storyteller Lopaka Kapanui sharing a few ghost tales with the conversations the Lean Song. Do you have a good ghost story you want to share? We'd love to hear it. Call our Talkback line 808-792-8217 or write to us at Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from CD2 Republican candidate Joe Akana as we count down to the general election eight days away. Got feedback or a story idea? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Missed something and want to listen back to something else? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow for more of the conversation.